1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm
2: John Fastman, And also in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: For years, American anti-abortion activists have contended that life begins at conception. Now some are taking that contention further and claiming that a fetus has the same rights as a person. An argument with a host of legal consequences.
2: And for 200 years, the Nile in Egypt's capital Cairo has been lined with houseboats whose paint jobs are as colorful as their history. Now they're being towed away and scuttled, the casualty of a government addicted to tearing down and rebuilding. First up though...
1: The contest to become the next leader of the Conservative Party, and therefore Britain's next prime minister, officially begins today. Candidates to replace Boris Johnson, who last week agreed to step down from the role, must secure nominations from 20 other MPs to go into the first round ballot. Conservative MPs will vote on that ballot tomorrow, with the field whittled down to two by the end of next week. The remaining pair will then begin campaigning ahead of a final vote, taken by the roughly 180,000 Conservative Party members on the 5th of September. The former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, was the first to put his hand in the ring. Another 10 have said they want to stand, and most have already been making their case in videos. The field is diverse. The music choices, alas, are not.
3: Our leadership has to change. It needs to become a little less about the leader and a lot more
4: about the ship. My case for leadership is simple. I can plan. Lie ahead. I'm the candidate with a clear vision for the future who can drive. Change. To get
1: a sense of the contest, we spoke with Duncan Robinson, our political editor and budget columnist, and first with Matthew Holehouse, our British political correspondent.
4: The nature of the field actually says a lot about the way in which Boris Johnson sort of ran his government and the way in which he left, in that there's no obvious front runner. He dominated his party, really, until he didn't. He left behind a fairly underpowered cabinet. And so it's a remarkably sort of unpredictable race. And the front runner, the bookies would tell you, is the former chancellor, but he's far from dominant. We are seeing the emergence of insurgent candidates in the form of Kemi Badnik, a relative unknown outside Westminster, who's picking up surprising support from the high reaches of the party. It's difficult to call at this point. The MPs' endorsements are really spreading surprisingly broadly throughout the field.
5: Absolutely. It's an incredibly wide field, an incredibly varied one. It's also incredibly diverse, and it's quite a remarkable contest. You've got people who've immense amounts of experience, who've been chancellor, who've been foreign secretary, and you've got people who've only been MPs for a few years. And while there is a clear-ish favorite in Rishi Sunak, it's incredibly open. Matthew, how are the candidates distinguishing themselves in such a wide field?
4: One of the things that's driving this wide field is actually we haven't yet seen emerge the essay question of this contest. And the Conservative Party is a machine for generating governments. It's a machine for holding power and it's very, very good at this. And the reason why that is is that it's internal contests, so a question of analyzing what is the question that has to be answered to hold onto power. Now, let's get back over recent internal contests, 2005. Tories had been out of power by that point for eight years. So the question was obvious. Who is the person who can bring this party back to power? 2016, the contest after that, after David Cameron sat down, it was quite obvious what the question was. Britain was sort of in this state of almost crisis because Britain had just voted to leave the European Union. Who could bring stability and deliver a negotiation? Theresa May won. 2019, the question was obvious. Brexit was deadlocked. Jeremy Corbyn was lurking there, ready to sweep the Conservative Party off the face of the earth. So the question was, who can break this Brexit deadlock and defeat Jeremy Corbyn? Boris Johnson wins. What's the question in 2022? Is it it's all about winning in 2024? Is it about repudiating the legacy of Boris Johnson? Well, there's a lot of that taking place, certainly. Is it about tackling the big squeeze that's coming down the track on living standards through inflation? There's various strands of this, but actually the coalescing that you normally see within days of an election beginning hasn't taken place. I think that's what's driving the big wide field.
1: And so if the essay question
5: is unclear, what are the candidates talking about? One quite common theme has been tax cuts.
4: Low taxes, a firm grip on spending, driving growth in the economy.
5: There's been various proposals. Some want to knock a penny off income tax. Others, such as Jeremy Hunt, want to reduce corporation tax to around 15%. Turbo
1: charges into being the most high-tech, greenest, most pro-enterprise, pro-business
5: economy in Europe. Bring... So that is the way that they're approaching this question. Rishi Sunak, interestingly, hasn't really thrown anything like that forward. He's sort of uh, putting himself as a man, sort of willing to tell tough truths. Do we confront this moment with honesty, seriousness and determination? Or do we tell ourselves comforting fairy tales that might make us feel better in the moment, but will leave
4: our children worse off tomorrow?
5: both to the party and to voters, and say that I c- we can't actually afford to do these tax cuts. we have to be sensible about it.
4: The other big theme that's coming out from the candidates is that whilst everybody's repudiating the way in which Boris Johnson ran his government, the sleaze and the lies and all the rest of it, it's not the same as a, a repudiation of his program or his philosophy of the state. What we're seeing emerge is that some of the taboos that he broke in office in the scope of executive power, and the way in which Britain relates with its neighbors, are now becoming the baseline. So to take one example, there was an agreement to directly send people who arrived in Britain via boats across the Channel to Rwanda. Controversial within the party, pretty much every contender, including those on the left of the party, are signing up to that because that's the new benchmark. Simply thinking on questions of identity politics, whether it's critical race theory or trans rights, within the opening weekend of the contest, these became early litmus tests. People had to say, yes, I don't believe in some of this new gender theory in a way which simply hasn't happened in previous contests. So the option of this is that the party that you're going to see come out of this is going to want to be, think of itself as more serious, more focused, more professional than Boris Johnson's operation but also more radical.
1: Duncan, it sounds as though what Matthew is describing is a sort of shift rightward. And to a certain extent, that is to be expected, right? Because they're appealing to the base of the party. Is that, do you think, going to imperil their viability in
5: 2024 to turn back toward a general electorate? Mm, I think there's a tendency within parties when they've been in power for a long time to effectively refuse to compromise. And so you get sort of Tied, you become more almost fundamentalist when it comes down to choosing a leader so if you're in opposition you're sick of being in opposition so you will choose the person who's most likely to get you back in power and you don't really care if they don't quite tally with your beliefs At this point, the Conservatives have been in power for 12 years. They don't see the need to compromise. 2019 was such a stunning victory from their point of view that there's a mild assumption that they can't quite lose. And I think that is why the fact that the next election is so close hasn't quite sunk in yet.
1: You both mentioned Boris Johnson's performance in 2019 where he won seats in former Labour heartlands. I saw that as an outsider and it always seemed to me that it was far more attributable to sort of who he was than anything he did. How durable do you think those gains are in 2024? And is there a candidate who best can follow in his footsteps as far as being a magnetic personality, policy aside? It
5: does feel like a high watermark. I would be very, very surprised if they were able to repeat it because the circumstances were so unique to that year where you had total Brexit deadlock and a remarkably unpopular Labour leader who was particularly unpopular in those Labour seats where the Tories won. Neither of those factors are there now. And so politics becomes sort of normal again. It becomes, do you feel richer? Do you feel the country is being well run? It's not about those previous topics, which created quite a unique situation. And so if politics is returning to the sort of boring fundamentals, then things look very, very bad for the conservatives. If you were to walk into a bookies
1: after this interview and put down some money, who would you put money on?
4: I'm not saying they're going to win, but I think Jeremy Hunt and Tom Tugendhat will do better than a lot of the punditry would suggest, simply for the reason that they focus very heavily on, on integrity and delivery, which the membership respects, but also they actually know the membership really well. They've been working their seats for a long time. They have a good instinctive understanding of the things that the membership is, is looking for.
5: So if I wanted to keep my money, I would put money on the favorite Rishi Sunak. He has a lot of MP backers. He's very sensible and clean Uh, relatively, even though he did get fined for turning up to a meeting uh, early and then accidentally ending up at Boris Johnson's birthday party. But he is the clear favorite. He has a good machine around him. And he has been sort of honest with MPs and with members that there's not that much they can do. But if I wanted a sort of outlandish bet, I would go for Kemi Badenoch, who's an outsider. But, you know, if the other candidates do blow themselves up somehow, then you can see her charging through the middle. Duncan and Matthew, this is a great conversation subscribers can hear more from you this
4: evening, right? We'll be doing a, an event for Economist subscribers. Uh, it's at five o'clock British summertime. We'll be part of a panel discussing what this contest means for Britain and for the world.
5: And viewers will be able to ask their own questions live on the chat. Otherwise, it'll be our editor, Zanny minton Bedos, grilling us. And subscribers can register for this webinar at
1: economist.com slash Boris resigns. Duncan and Matthew, thanks so much for stopping by today.
5: Thanks very much. Thank you.
4: At
1: the core of the fight over abortion in America is a moral and philosophical question over when life begins. And at what stage do cells become a person? Scientists, scholars, and theologians have come up with an array of answers. But increasingly, anti-abortion activists are coalescing around a single position.
2: Life begins at conception, which means from the moment of fertilization. The act of abortion intentionally ends the life of a living, whole, distinct, unrepeatable human being. The leading cause of death for a child is abortion.
1: They consider fetuses to be whole human beings, and as such, entitled to all the rights that entails.
3: So the notion of fetal personhood, which is broadly that not just a fetus, but a fertilized egg should have the same rights as a person who's been born, has been around for a long time, but it's becoming increasingly influential.
1: Meehan Ridge is The Economist's American social affairs correspondent.
3: So in recent years, some judges in conservative states have appointed lawyers for fetuses in abortion disputes. Generally, when a minor wants to have an abortion, but her parents don't give consent, that seems a pretty fanciful idea on the face of it. Because of course, lawyers can't meet or talk to their client or guess at their client's wishes. But with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, this push for legal recognition of the personhood of fetuses seems set to grow.
1: What's the reasoning behind this concept?
3: Most anti-abortionists believe that life begins at conception. And the logical extension of that, they would argue, is to say, well, all unborn lives are precious. It's not for anyone to say at what moment in time a fetus becomes valuable. So it's absolutist, but it's also consistent. Because once you say that, no, these lives do not have the value of other lives further along in a pregnancy, you open up the conversation to questions like, what gestational limits should there be for abortion? And then the debate becomes about degrees of legality. So in that sense, fetal personhood is simple and consistent and extremely clear. Of course, in the real world, a fertilized egg is not the same as a viable fetus, a fetus that's close to being born, or a baby. And it doesn't, and this is where the problems arise, have rights comparable to those of the woman who's carrying it.
1: So that's the concept. And you mentioned that there have been some legal representations of fetuses Is there any legislation behind this concept in any state?
3: So before Roe was overturned, several states every year introduced bills that would have banned abortion by establishing fetal personhood. But because Roe versus Wade rejected the very idea of fetal personhood quite explicitly and protected abortion until a fetus was viable, that's around 23 weeks, these laws were routinely blocked by courts which had no choice because they were unconstitutional. Now that Roe's been overturned, uh, at least two states so far have sought to implement these laws, Georgia and Arizona. So in Arizona, for example, the American Civil Liberties Union is suing state officials over a ban that would give, and I quote, an unborn child at every stage of development, all rights, privileges and immunities. And the ACLU is saying that the law's vagueness puts providers and women at risk of prosecution.
1: So me and you talked about fetal personhood being recognized at the state level in a couple of places. What about the national level? Do you think reversing Roe opens the door for a national recognition of fetal personhood?
3: I think it's most unlikely anytime soon. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe, doesn't recognize fetal personhood. It even suggests fairly explicitly that it doesn't. But some legal scholars believe that it opens the door for laws that do. So it criticizes the view that the constitution requires the states to regard a fetus as lacking even the most basic human right to live, at least until an arbitrary point in a pregnancy is passed. That kind of language, a legal scholar told me, will certainly encourage states to try to pass fetal personhood laws. And there's a suggestion that the Supreme Court could uphold such laws, but that's very unclear at this point.
1: So Mian, what would it mean for women if if the fetuses they carry are deemed to have rights equal to theirs?
3: So if you emphasise the legal rights of a fetus, at some point that's going to compromise the legal rights of the woman who's carrying it. I think already similar beliefs, even if not explicitly fetal personal beliefs, have led to laws that, for example, ban abortion in the case of rape or incest or in the very worst cases of a child who's been made pregnant as a result of rape. Because once you believe that a foetus deserves the rights that a born person has, the manner in which that foetus is conceived is secondary. This kind of thinking will also affect the way that women are treated during pregnancy. I spoke to Dana Sussman, the Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, who says her organisation has recorded many, many examples of cases in which the well-being of the foetus has been prioritised over the well-being of the woman carrying the foetus. So, for example, she is... Uh, compelled to take bed rest or undergo a cesarean section, the eventual consequence could be that a doctor has to consider questions like, is she sick enough? Should we wait and see? Will I be prosecuted if I bought this foetus to probably save the life of the mother? And those are clearly the sorts of considerations that a doctor should not have to make.
1: And legally, what sort of implications would there be if a fetus was recognized as a person or as having all the rights, privileges and immunities, as the phrase goes, of a person?
3: So it would affect so many areas of law and public life that it would be quite impossible. Should the census count fetuses? Can you imprison pregnant women if that also means imprisoning a fetus with rights? Most Americans don't believe that embryos are equivalent in terms of legal rights to people who are born. But it's I think important to point out that such beliefs don't need to be explicitly written into law to influence anti-abortionists and legislation, and also the way that doctors in conservative states, perhaps with pro-life beliefs, think about such things. But Congress is very unlikely to pass an abortion ban based on fetal personhood anytime soon because of those sorts of problems, and there are much easier ways for it to pass a national abortion ban.
1: Mian, thanks very much for your time today.
3: Thank you, John.
2: When you think of historical landmarks in Egypt, you probably think of the pyramids. But if you've been to Cairo, you've probably seen something a little less grandiose, but not all that much less historical, the colorful houseboats lining the Nile.
3: My entire life has been in a houseboat, son. I was born in a houseboat.
2: Now, the last of these historic structures are facing destruction as part of a bigger, worrying trend overseen by Egypt's government.
0: They're not that much to look at, but they have a storied place in Egyptian history. They've been there since the 1800s. According to local rumor, powerful Ottoman officials used to use them to stash their mistresses. They've appeared in famous films and famous works of literature.
2: Greg Carlstrom is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist.
0: And of course, in recent decades, they've also just been home for dozens of families. But that legacy has come to an abrupt end as Egypt has ordered them removed. And why is that? The official story is that the boats don't have permits, and so they might be unsafe, and the government wants to remove them for public safety. The houseboat owners say they would be happy to get permits, but the government stopped renewing them two years ago. The government has also offered some of them to issue permits, but only if they convert the boats from residential use to commercial use. And the government sees this as a piece of prime real estate, of course, right along the banks of the Nile. And it wants to have that real estate for restaurants, for cafes, that gets at a bigger trend in Egypt. The CC government, which took power, of course, following a military coup in 2013, is addicted to cement. It has done lots of construction up and down the country. Ministers like to brag about the roads that they've paved, around 5,500 kilometers of them in eight years. You have poor neighborhoods from central Cairo to the shadow of the pyramids that have been torn down to make room for new developments. Even a seventh century cemetery in Eastern Cairo is on the chopping block to make room for a new highway.
2: And how is that broad push for development landing with Egyptians? Some of that has been received quite
0: well. The roads, for example, Egypt and Cairo in particular is notorious for its traffic. And these new roads and bridges and tunnels have done a lot to ease commutes around the country. So people have been quite enthusiastic about many of those projects. Elites have been happy about them too. The army is often the lead contractor on big development works. It also controls factories that produce cement and steel and other inputs. And so it makes quite a lot of money from this construction, as do big private construction firms in Egypt, which are often political allies for the president. There has been, though, some pushback. The most obviously upset are those thousands of people who have been displaced from their homes. They're often given very little notice. Someone will show up one day and paint a red mark on your door, and then just days later, bulldozers will show up to clear your homes. And there's also a growing frustration with what seems like the government's inattention to the historical and cultural and environmental implications of all of this construction. in Heliopolis, for example, which is a neighborhood in eastern Cairo, was once one of the rare bits of green space, a city that has very little. But over the past few years, the government has uprooted about 100 acres worth of trees to make room for new roads. And it's really upset local residents. And so there's a growing frustration with the consequences, both intended and unintended, of all of this development.
2: And what do you mean there by unintended consequences?
0: One recent example is the new motorway that's under construction on Egypt's Mediterranean coast. This is meant to be an international highway that will one day move traffic all the way to the western border with Libya. It's also supposed to ease the traffic between the compounds of holiday homes that dot the Mediterranean coast. They're a popular summer getaway for upper-class egyptians who want to escape the heat of the capital and they're driving up there now this summer using this new highway for the first time and many of them are saying it's not easing their commute it's actually making their commute a hair-raising experience you have gated compounds that spill directly onto the highway an elevated roundabout where cars rush onto the roundabout going against traffic it's become one of the hot topics in egypt over the past couple of weeks many people saying It's wonderful that the government is developing these new roads, but they don't seem to have consulted anyone who actually knows how you build a highway.
2: So coming back to the houseboats, what does that mean for the future of those kinds of communities that have been left alone till now?
0: The houseboat owners have lost their battle to keep their homes. They've watched one by one in recent days as their houseboats have been towed away to be scrapped. They tried to wage a, a public campaign using the media, using social media, but it was ultimately unsuccessful. Contrast that with what's happening with this highway where President Sisi has said, on the one hand, the people who were grumbling about it are just complaining the road isn't finished yet. They're trying to defame his government. But he's also promised to personally look into their complaints. And he's fired one of the officials who was responsible for the department that built this road. Not a coincidence, I think, that his kids have holiday homes off this same highway. And so I think that points to the answer here where The government is not totally impervious to criticism, but it only tends to take criticism from the moneyed elite, the political elite. The houseboat owners were a small and not particularly influential group. The same goes for the masses of poor people who have been displaced from central Cairo and from other parts of the city to make room for what are meant to be very fancy new mixed use developments. And if the new residents have any complaints, the government will probably take those to heed.
2: Thanks very much for your time, Greg. Thank you. Thank you.